0: You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all sin, and save our souls, O good one. We jump right in to our text here today in the 11th Sunday after Pentecost, a parable we know quite well, the parable of the unforgiving servant, or we could say the, the forgiving king and the unforgiving servant. There's much to be learned here from the text, much to be mined from the text. An underlying theme, which I think we can we do well to look at a text which is not given to us today in scripture as an introduction, and that is in Philippians chapter 2. So I want to just just before we jump into Matthew, I want to turn to Philippians chapter 2 and, and read a couple of verses. We're looking at Philippians chapter 2, verse, I'm going to start with verse 5. Have this in, in mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This theme of of humbling willingly as a way of restoration is, uh, is, we can say, a foundational theme for these days of the fast and during this time in the Feast of the Transfiguration in which we are called to be restored. Remember, in all feasts of the Lord, we are looking not simply at what happened to Him, but what happened in Him for the sake of our humanity. The great feast of the Dormition, the great feast of the Transfiguration, the great feast of the Baptism of the Lord, the great feast of the Resurrection of the Lord is a calling for each one of us to be transfigured and transformed in His image and likeness. So let's jump right in now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 23. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. The Lord told this parable, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who desired to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun the settlement, one was brought to him who owed him millions. And as he had no means of paying, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had. And payment to be made. But the servant fell down and begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And moved with compassion, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But as that servant went out, he met one of his fellow servants who owed him a small amount. And he laid hold of him and throttled him, saying, pay what you owe. His fellow servant, therefore, fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. But he would not, but went away and threw him into prison until he would pay what was due. His fellow servants, therefore, seeing what had happened, were very much saddened, and they went and informed their master of what had taken place. Then his master called him and said to him, Wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should not you also have had pity on your fellow servant, even as I have had pity on you? And his master, being angry, handed him over to the torturers until he would pay all that was due to him. So also my heavenly Father will do to you, if you do not each forgive your brother from your heart. Father Sebastian, as co- we commonly do here, we try to get the, the the right at the at the start the context in which these texts are given so that we're not just parachuting in on Sunday, not knowing where we're at in the gospel. So just very quickly give us the, the placement of this text in the gospel, but also why is Jesus talking about this type of thing now in the progression of the gospel story?
1: Okay, so we're in the second half of the gospel and the, we're just after the transfiguration, a feast that we're going to be celebrating shortly in our own liturgical cycle, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. And uh, as he heads to Jerusalem, he's preparing his disciples with a little more catechesis than they got before. Uh, there was uh, a lot of teaching he did before uh, in the first half of the gospel there in Galilee, teaching the crowds. And now he's also teaching his disciples intimately some very important pastoral lessons they're going to need as they enter into this next stage of his ministry which will be in Jerusalem, in his death and resurrection. He'll spend more time catechizing them, preparing them, of course, 40 days after his resurrection and before his ascension. But we're starting to find some very intense, very concentrated catechesis, teaching, pastoral teaching of the Master for his disciples. And, of course, there's great lessons in there for all of us, especially as we enter into the fast.
0: And we have here this, the, this idea of trans, transformation, transfiguration, uh, this invitation and an example of the servant who is not transfigured, who does not follow the guidance of the king. Uh, of course, here the king is, is God himself and the servants are those who are, who are Jesus' disciples. They're learning how to be restored in the image and likeness in which they were made. You know, St. John Christom, I, I came across a beautiful quotation I want to share He says that God created us from nothing. He made the whole visible world for us, the heaven, the sea, the earth, the animals, plants and seeds. I must be brief because the infinite number of his works into us alone of all that are on earth. He breathed a living soul. He planted a garden for us. He gave us a helpmate and set us over all the brute species. And he crowned us with glory and honor. And yet, after all of this, when humanity turned out ungrateful towards its benefactor, he thought us worthy of an even greater gift, forgiveness. There's a beautiful quotation. a, A modern theologian I was reading said, I think he described, he says, mercy and forgiveness are love in action. They're love in action. God is love, as John tells us in his epistles. God is love, we are made in his image and likeness. And now the church places before us this model of what that looks like in a, in a, say in a post-fallen world. And that love which brought about our initial creation, the pouring out of his life into us in, in paradise, is now, say, transformed or takes another form, and that is the form of mercy and forgiveness. But it is nevertheless the same love. And it is a recreative love. It's one that restores us to the image and likeness of the Father. As we turn to the epistle now, but it's so important here at the beginning, in this time of the Feast of the Transfiguration, in this time of the fast of the Dormition, that we ourselves are not looking at these feasts, as I said earlier, from the outside, but as an opportunity to restoration to God's original plan in our life. And if we come and we beg for mercy as we do every, every day praying the Our Father, if we beg for forgiveness uh, as we do in our liturgy on Sunday and again in every, every day of our prayer life, then we ought to be having been forgiven by God through holy baptism. We ought to begin to live that restored life by not just continuing this direct relationship, receiving, taking like from the vending machine of God, but taking and receiving and then giving to those around us. I think this is an important lesson during this 15 days of the fast. This is a time given to us for restoration, a time to humble ourselves, as we read in Philippians, that in humbling ourselves, God may begin to shine as in the feast of the transfiguration, shine in our own life. That if there are those brothers and sisters in our churches and our families whom deserve our forgiveness, then we ought to act as God has act has acted in forgiving us. Let's turn uh very quickly to the epistle which is given to us in First Corinthians chapter nine. Chapter nine verse two. Actually I have a note here, father, if you don't mind, I there was one other church father quotation that I thought was very insightful. St. John Chrysom picks up on the same point. This comes from Apollinarius that at the end of the gospel reading that was given to us, it says, so also my heavenly father will do to you if you do not each forgive your brothers from your hearts. And notice, so often in the gospel, Jesus talks about our heavenly father. But here, in the case of the one who refused to be in the image and likeness of the king, who refused to follow his example, he says, so also my heavenly father, my heavenly father will do to you And the fathers of the church pick up on this point. Apollinaria says, He did not say, so also will your father do to you, but my father. For such people are unworthy to be called sons of God. So the parable describes in summary the indescribable love of God. Anyone who does not imitate this love as far as he can will suffer severe punishment from the just judge. Striking words from the fathers of the church. Let's jump in here to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 2 through 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 2 through 12. Brethren, you are the seal set upon my apostleship in the Lord. My defense against those who question me is this. Have we, no, have we not a right to eat and to drink? Have we not a right to take around with us a sister wife? as do the other apostles, and the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have not the right to refrain from manual labor? What soldier ever serves at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Who tends the flock and does not drink of the flock's milk? Do I speak these things on human authority, or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads out the grain. Is God concerned about the oxen, or does he say this simply for our sakes? These things were written for us. For he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in the expectation of partaking of the fruit. If we have sown for you spiritual things, is it such an affair if we reap from you material things? If others share in this right over you, why should it not rather go to us? And here's the key. Yet we have not used this right, but we bear all our expenses, lest we are a hindrance to Christ's good news. And I think this is ultimately why this epistle is given to us today, Father Sebastian, because right in this last verse, that though all of these goods are, in a sense, due to us in all of these goods of this world are made for us. Yet St. Paul says, I do not use all of these goods for the sake of the world, for the sake of the good news, for the sake of the world. Let's go back to our original question about the context, Father Sebastian, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, what's St. Paul talking about originally to to the audience there in Corinth?
1: All right. Well, Paul is writing he he founded the church in Corinth on his second journey if we remember if our audience will recall that Paul after his conversion went from Antioch and then traveled into Asia Minor uh, and first Cyprus and then to Asia Minor and then in Asia Minor he founded some churches there and then he came back to Antioch that's his first journey his second journey he covers that same territory but this time, again, leaving Antioch, he goes into Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and then it crosses the Aegean into Greece, Macedonia, then heads down to Greece. And he ends up in Corinth. And in Corinth, he founds the church there in Corinth, which is still there today. This is something I like to point this out to, uh, to uh, people today. The church has been around for 2,000 years, and there are literally churches that have been there for 2,000 years church like the Church of Corinth. You can go there today, and there are Christians there that are descendants and buildings that are built on the foundation of this, these original churches in that first century. It's, it's really, really amazing. So then he leaves Corinth, goes back to Asia, or he goes back through Asia, he ends up in Antioch again, That's his second journey. On his third journey, he travels again into Asia Minor. And while he's in Ephesus, that coastal town there across the Aegean from Greece, he wrote a letter, 1 Corinthians, to the church in Corinth. And the reason is because the church in Corinth, in his absence, has begun to have a number of problems. There are some leaders who have moved into the church some individuals who have made themselves out as leaders of the church there and they are teaching things very differently than paul they're acting very differently than paul did as leaders of the church and so paul now has to defend himself because one of the questions the these the church is asking of these leaders is why are you saying things differently than paul did Why are you teaching us things differently than Paul taught? Paul didn't say to do that. Paul said we couldn't do this, and you're saying we can. And then the other thing, which is what we see here, is Paul, when he was there, was supporting himself. This was a new community just founded by Paul. So he doesn't ask of any support from them. He supports himself by tent making like he does everywhere else. By the time this, these leaders have moved into the Church of Corinth, it's now been around for a few years. And so it's established, and they're asking for support from the community. And the community says, well, when Paul was here and founded us, he didn't ask us to support him, but you're now asking. So there's, there's a difference again. And the leaders' response, their response over and over to the congregation's question about these differences is, paul didn't do the things we're doing and didn't teach the things we're teaching because paul was not a real apostle and so that's why this whole epistle the tone of it is very defensive paul is still he hasn't arrived again for a second visit to the church but there's problems now there and so he's writing this letter to precede his eventual arrival which will happen just in a few months and to prepare them for that arrival hoping that he can smooth some of these things out before he gets there. And we can see that context. If we look at the verses above the reading today, we begin our reading in the, in the second verse. But if we look at the first verse, at chapter 9, verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? You can hear this. He's, it's a rhetorical question, right? Mm-hmm. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Right? These are the things that they're accusing him of not being and not having. Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, the leaders, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense against those who would examine me. So that's that the tone and, and what's happening there.
0: That's super helpful. And we got to come back to this question. The, the, the whole thrust of this thing is about the, the, the material things, right? About uh, and, and, of course, we're looking at this in the context of the fast of the Dormition that we're, we're, we're in the middle of, but we but really want to get a sense of what's what's St. Paul talking about here about all these things? Do I, don't I do I have a right to all this business? But there's a couple other items I think may be confusing here to our, our listeners, our participants. First of all, who's Cephas? The Lord, let's see, have we not a right to take around with us a sister wife, as do the other apostles and brethren Lord and Cephas? Who's Cephas? All right, so these are... Th-
1: I love things like that because it just it draws us right in that historical context, right? So not only did we see the historical context that we were just discussing, but also the just the general early church history, Peter or Kepha, Simon, right? We know the apostle Simon, that's his given name as a as a Jew. But Jesus said in John chapter 1, verse 42, he said to him when he first encountered him, Ah, you are Simon, you shall be called Kepha. This is Aramaic for rock. When Jesus is done with his Galilean ministry, about three years into it, he then at Caesarea Philippi, way up north, and we all know that story in Matthew 16, he says to Simon, you shall be called rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church. We know that. Uh, story, and we can talk about that in another discussion. So, rock, there's just rock. Now, in Greek, kepha is translated in Greek from that Aramaic as petros, from which we get the English word Peter. So, you could just put the word Peter here, but this is a great, you say, well, why does it say Peter then? Because the letters written in Greek, and in this one spot, rather than have petros, it has kepha transliterated into the Greek. Why would it have that? Because this is how Paul referred to him, because Paul spoke Aramaic and Greek, and Peter's normal world in which he moved around in was not Greek, but Aramaic down in Palestine, where they were still speaking Aramaic. Hmm. So he refers to him by the name that he usually refers to him, and that just shows you, this is this is a real letter written by a real guy named Paul, who's got a real relationship with a guy who's over in Palestine, where they speak Aramaic. That. It anchors you into that historical context. And the brother of the Lord, of course, that's James. Sir.
0: So the other aspect, so Cephas is, you're saying is Peter. The other aspect of this thing, and it's going to lead us in this question of the material goods that St. Paul's arguing about, is this thing about sister wife, which I think is a, is a bit of a strange phrase. Have we not a right to take, well, let's go back just a little bit. Says, my defense against those who question me is this, have we not a right to eat and drink? Have we not a right to take around with us a sister wife, as do the other apostles and the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? This, there's, there's been, you know, many commentators trying to figure out what this is or trying to make their own interpretation of what this is and help us, Father, in the original context. This is why a text without a context is no text at all. We can look at simply the, the, the linguistics, the language here, back to the Greek text, but also the context of St. Paul's writings. and Help us understand this idea of sister-wife in the context of St. Paul and with the linguistic understanding also.
1: Okay, so the, the, you'll find in various Bibles, you'll have sister-wife or sister-woman. There's the clue. There's something funny going on here. What's happening? What's he talking about? Well, as he, he's referring to the things he has rights to do, and even as an example of that, proof that he has a right to do it, he says, hey, other apostles are doing this stuff, but I and Barnabas don't use those rights for the sake of the gospel, which we'll talk about in a second. So what are those rights he's talking about? A right to food and drink. What do you mean food and drink? Well, he's not talking about bread and water. Right? He's talking about the things you have to buy. You don't buy water. Well, he's talking about being supported by the community with food, and this would be in the case of bread and meat and vegetables and like that, but also of wine." This is what they would drink. They didn't drink water, they drank wine. So when he went to these places, when they sat down for a meal in Corinth or wherever, they didn't drink water with their meal. They had food and they had some wine with it. And so, but that costs money. So he says, I I have a right, just like the other apostles, to be supported by the community. Obviously not only with, you know, some, some denarii and things like that, but to be supported with the basic things in that era would have been food and drink. That is the things he needs for the day and shelter and things like that. But this, this sister-wife, the first word sister, when we take it apart, we can easily figure this out. The word sister, when we hear the word sister in modern English, we think of you know, our female sibling. But the word sister is used in the Pauline epistles as the female version of the word brother. So we got to look in the Pauline epistles and say, how is the word brother and sister used by Paul? While he may, in some contexts, you know, use that word the way we would use in English. In the Pauline epistles, because these are theological works to communities, church communities, he's using the words brother and sister in the way we typically do in church even today. Brethren, brothers and sisters in the Lord, right? So means fellow Christian. A great example, and this is, as you were saying, context, context, context. When we have a question about something Paul says, We want to look in that immediate paragraph. And if that doesn't help, then you look in the whole chapter. And if that doesn't help, then you move out to the chapter before and the chapter after. And if that doesn't help, well, you read the whole work, the whole epistle. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't work, which it typically will have, then you read an epistle or two around it. And that will usually help us understand what's being said in some particular verse. Here's a classic example. If we go back to chapter seven, if we go back to chapter seven, he says in verse 12, he's referring to a, a Christian, a, if a Christian man has a pagan wife, this is, you have a, a male, a, a man and a, a woman, pagans, one of them converts and the other doesn't. What do you do in a situation? So he says in chapter 7, verse 12, to the rest, I say, not the Lord, he says that if any brother has a wife any brother has a wife, a brother of what, of another man, (laughs) right? He's not using the word brother, meaning sibling. He says, brother, that word brother there means male Christian. If you want to put it in modern English, if any male Christian has a wife who is an unbeliever, who is a non-Christian and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband, now, wouldn't you say any wife has a husband there? And this is going to get into the issue there. Who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live there? She should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is consecrated through his wife, and the unbelieving wife, there he switched, look at woman and wife, and the unbelieving wife is consecrated to her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner desires to separate, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister, look at that, the brother or sister is not bound. Now, if we, brother or sister? Is this some sort of ancestral situation here? <laughs> no. We're using the words brother and sister. It means male and female Christian versus the pagan spouse. That's how he's using that language. Notice also in the English, we went between wife and woman, wife and woman. So what's going on here? Let's go back to chapter nine, and we can now see the uh, the answer. It says, he says, do we not have the right to be accompanied by a, in the Greek, a sister wife or sister woman, however you want to translate it. Sister in, in Paul's epistles means female Christian. So Christian here, obviously it's a female, so we'll just simplify it. The word Christian, the word sister or brother is synonymous for us and simpler this. the word Christian. So, and then the word woman in Greek, guine is translated in English translations, sometimes as woman, sometimes as wife, by the English translator. Paul's not doing that switching back and forth in chapter 7. That's the English translator doing that. So mm-hmm. the word here is guinea. And in the ancient world, a woman was always married. If she wasn't married, she was a widow. Those were the options. If she got divorced, a woman remarried within a week. If there was a divorce situation, even in the Jewish culture, if someone divorced, a man divorced his wife, they were, she was remarried within a week. It was, it was inconceivable that you would have a woman wandering around in town, a, you know, a 30 year old, 40 year old woman who was not married, unless she was an older woman who was a widow. And in Greek, they have a specific word for widow, but in Greek, they do not have a distinct word for wife because all women are wives. Hmm. They also don't have a distinct word for husband. All men are husbands unless they're a, uh, a widow. So the so that's the problem in English translation. The English translators are trying to figure out, and, and of course, all translations are an interpretation. So it'd be very careful what translations we're using. And then we also have to, Cut the translator a little slack in that sometimes he has to make a choice like here, and it's sometimes not easy. The best translation here then, given the context here and what's happening, we know Peter was married. If we go back to Matthew chapter 9, we hear about Jesus, or chapter 8, we hear about Jesus healing the mother-in-law of Peter. Well, everyone knows that Peter would not be living with his mother-in-law. His mother-in-law wouldn't live in the house with him unless his wife was still alive. So, And we know Peter's wife was still alive because we hear about him traveling with his wife here. And, of course, in the Roman martyrology, we know that Peter and his wife went to martyrdom together. So what's, the, what's going on here? Paul is just simply saying, I and Barnabas have rights. And because we don't use those rights, that is not evidence that, we're not, that we don't have the right to use those. That, that is that we're not apostles. He says, there are other apostles who do these things. They travel with their Christian wife. They travel with their, uh, and, and they get fed and supported. But I and Barnabas don't do these things lest I put a stumbling block in the ministry, lest I put too much burden upon a new community that I am founding. Remember, Barnabas and Paul were missionaries. Peter, for the most part, just stayed in one location with his wife and family. So they were, they were living out the ministry of the apostleship differently.
0: You know, I I, um, I love going back to the fathers. There was a, a interesting. I want to come back to this idea of material goods and what Saint Paul's dealing with here, in the uh, in the community of Corinth. Why he's saying what he's saying. But Saint John Chrysostom says the apostleship. You know, Saint Paul mentions isn't a soldier. Um, uh, how does he say it? What what soldier ever serves at his own expense? And so, likening his work to that of a soldier, and I thought that was a very interesting insight is the apostleship. Was much more dangerous than being a soldier, for their warfare was not just with men, but with demons as well. The apostles were soldiers and husbandmen and shepherds, not of the earth, nor of irrational animals, uh, nor in such wars as are per- perceived by the senses, but of rational souls and in battle array with the demons themselves. Uh, I, I mention this because. Here, we're, when we're talking about what St. Paul's dealing with, though he's looking at a material, these material compensations and so forth, this struggle going on in the community, the fact is his apostleship throws him into another realm, just as our fast in, in the time of the Dormition is throwing us into another realm. We should expect during this time of the fast the attack of the evil one. We should expect the challenge and the, and the, and the battle with the unseen forces knowing knowing the one who is victorious in these times but then the question is how do we become victorious and this i want to go back to saint paul and what he's dealing with here in corinth what exactly is taking place father why is he why is he in this big debate and 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 almost it sounds like a it's his defensive and he's fighting with what's going on help us understand why saint paul is in this in this funny situation where where peter is different than he is and why he's, why he's arguing about these material goods. Okay, so yeah, the, uh, as I was saying before, there's this problem in
1: Corinth because Paul founded that community and, and then quickly went back you know, to Antioch. And in his absence, these other leaders have moved in and they are now ruling the community and doing things very differently than Paul did. and. Paul says, look, I have rights, but I didn't use those rights. And what he's doing is he's turning the argument on its head. These leaders are saying, in response to the community, Paul didn't ask for your support because he didn't have the right to, and he knew it. But we do, and that's why we're asking. So let me have your wallet. Uh, Paul didn't tell you that you could go eat food offered to idols because he's not really well trained in Christianity. You know, he doesn't even know Peter. He was never even in Jerusalem. He's from Tarsus. But we are teaching you the true gospel, the truth of the Christian faith. So listen to us. And by the way, uh, did anyone bring a nice bottle of Zinfandel to the meeting tonight? Because remember, I require that every night. So the they're requiring of the community saying the community is responding with questions and they're saying the reason why paul didn't do these things is because paul's not real and then paul turns that thing on its head and says i didn't request these things the community i didn't request these things of you because i am a real apostle well it is true there are apostles out there who who travel with their family even though that costs more money for the community There are apostles out there who don't go around from church to church founding places because they're traveling with their wives and kids and can't get to everywhere. I'm coming to you whenever I can. He 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 says in other places. I've been thrown in prison. I've been shipwrecked. I've been. He's living the life of a full-time missionary, and also therefore in the sense of sustenance he's just you know making it from town to town eating a granola bar and drinking some water from the stream and goes and preaches the gospel and then he moves on and he does again if he needs support he makes a tent and makes some cash to put himself up in a hotel for the night so he he's he's on a shoestring budget and he shows he says look it's these these are the these are the things that I'm doing these things because, because of the gospel and because, although unworthy as I am, I am a real apostle.
0: You know, what your, your words remind me of a conversation I had just really last night with, a, with, a, uh, with someone. We were talking about the fast of the, of the dormition, and they said to me, you know, Father, Jesus, Jesus never taught about the dormition fast. In the Bible. That's something the church, that's a church thing. And I said, whoa, never divide the church from Christ. The church is the body of Christ. This is a, this was a, she didn't realize what, what she was saying, but, but, but playing right into the hands of those who would attack the church and try to divorce God's work. From the lord himself the church is the lord's work the church is the presence of christ on earth the church is the body of christ and so we can never divide the bible and the church or jesus and the church and put them at, at odds with each other they're never at odds with each other so it, very important during this time of the fast we follow here what saint paul is teaching that we set aside things which we say hey i deserve all of these things these are coming to me by almost by right but i set them aside for the sake of the gospel and ultimately i set them aside that i might follow jesus's example who set aside his his divine prerogative this is why i started with philippians his divine prerogative humbled himself to become one of us that he might take us to himself that he might embrace us and restore us to the original image and likeness in which we have been made bringing us back to the uh the text of the gospel restoring us to the image of the father who made us in the beginning restoring us to the one who has offered his love in action who has offered us his mercy and forgiveness how important it is during this time of the fast that this transfiguration of our life begins to take place, that we set aside willingly those things which God has made good for us so that we may attain a greater good, the ministry of the gospel. Looking forward to the Dormition, we're given the example of the Mother of God herself, who, having undergone death, as her son did, is given the opportunity for restoration to the fullness of life. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.